0: Welcome to Done & Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess, on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Today, I have a story to tell you that I am fascinated by. I have been since March of 1991, when Vanity Fair publishes an article called Memento Mori by our man Nick. This is the tale of the much-married and much-widowed Enid Linderman Cameron Cavendish Furness Castleross. We here at Hemlock Creatives do have another podcast called Trashy Divorces, and I can't cover this story there because this lady doesn't divorce them. She kills them. So perfect for Dunn and done. Maybe she doesn't kill them exactly, but there is a long line of dead grooms. As Dominic Dunn will write in the teaser introduction for this article, Enid Kinmare was hooked on rich husbands, casinos, and heroin. Emerald Cunard will give Enid her first moniker of the Stucco Venus. This will not be, however, the moniker she is remembered by. That one is provided by Somerset Mom and is the much more well known moniker for Enid of Lady Kilmore. Oh, friends, I have a story for you today. Let's investigate. What an opening paragraph from this article that I'm going to read to you. This article is released by the time Dominic Dunn has had seven years in a number of books fully writing. He's truly developing his talents, especially in these nonfiction pieces. And wowza, this kind of story is his wheelhouse. The opening of Memento Mori is going to draw the reader in with connections to people and ideas that they would already be familiar with set in current context. From the first paragraphs of this piece, there are people in fashionable society who throughout their lives carry with them the burden of their scandals as ineradicable from their personality as a tattoo on their forearm. Anne Woodward, the widow of the handsome and very rich William Woodward, never again after her husband's death, Walked into a drawing room or anywhere else without someone whispering, She's the woman who shot and killed her husband. Perhaps it was by accident, as she claimed, perhaps not. It didn't matter. It was what people said about her, and she knew they said it. The same is true of Klaus von Bulow, the husband of the beautiful and very rich Sonny von Bulow. Even acquitted, as he was, he will never enter a room or a restaurant or a theater without someone whispering, he's the man who was accused of trying to kill his wife. Another such person, forever notorious, was the beautiful Enid Kinmare, or Lady Kinmare, or to be perfectly correct, the Countess of Kinmare, a mythic figure of the French Riviera and Chatelaine of a great house, La Via Fiorentina, who lost four husbands all by death. Now you heard a few names in there, Anne Woodward, Klaus von Bülow, We will be talking about those on Done and Done soon enough. But today, we're beginning with the original. And the Countess of Kinmare will walk into many, many rooms in her life homes and casinos and all kinds of places. And she's legendary in all of them. Enid, just to make things simple for now, is legendary in her own set. Today, we have a lot of famous people that are common knowledge with all of us, and people gossip all day about them. But this lady, She's in a certain set that is less gossipy to the press and the public than they are within their own circle. But whoa, they talk a lot. And Dominic got the scoop about the Countess of Kenmare from her friends, enemies, contemporaries. It's a good story. The thing I need you to know is that Enid is beautiful, she will stop traffic in a room when she walks in. To give you an idea of her legendariness, I'm going to continue reading a little bit about her here from Memento Mori. The beauty of the much married and much widowed Enid Kenmare was so renowned in the years before and after the Second World War that it was said people stood on chairs in the lobby of the Hotel de Paris in Monte Carlo to catch a glimpse of her as she passed through. She was reported to be fabulously rich owing to the various inheritances from her deceased husbands, who included an American millionaire, Roderick Cameron, and three English aristocrats, Brigadier General Frederick Cavendish, Viscount Furness, and the Earl of Kenmare. She was also a constant and successful gambler, who frequented the casinos of Monte Carlo and Buleen Knightley, her friends of that period claimed that people would drop their cards or chips to look at her when she swept past the entrance without bothering to show the required passport. So well-known was she. There were always great stacks of chips in front of her, and she never showed any emotion whether she lost or won. According to one popular story, she purchased her magnificent estate at Cap ferrat with her winnings from a single big gambling night at the casino but like every other story about her, it may or may not be true. Quote, Enid became such a character that people began to invent stories about her, and she told stories about herself that contributed to that sort of talk. Anthony Posson, a septuagenarian, bon vivant, told me in London shortly before his death in December. Enid was a mythomaniac, said an old bridge partner of Lady Kinmares on the Riviera. She'd invent stories, and that could be dangerous. You don't know why those people lie, but they do. She had fantastic posture, wore cabochon emeralds or rubies, and dressed for the evening in diaphanous and flowing gowns, remembered one of her friends. It wasn't so much that she was superior, as that she was in another sphere, almost. She sort of floated. She had the most amazing eyes. <laughs> Enid Kinmare's other sphere was, from all accounts, dope. She kept her beauty because she didn't drink. But she was a heroin addict, legally a heroin addict. She was on the drugs list, you know, registered. Marvelous skin never went into the sun, said a gentleman in New York. Another gentleman in London said she smoked opium clearly and took heroin. A lady friend, more cautious, said I never noticed when people took dope. But another lady friend said she lived in a haze of drugs. Everyone commented on the fact that she drank Coca-Cola morning, noon, and night. What a setup, right? You want to read this article. Enid will begin life as Enid Lindemann in Australia in 1892. Her father, Charles, is the man who will introduce vine growing for the purposes of wine into New South Wales in Australia. Dad also has horses too, and it is a privileged upbringing for a proper young girl, but Enid always kind of looking for more. She will find the first key to the more she's looking for when, at the age of sixteen, she will meet and allegedly become the mistress of Bernard Barak, an American financier and adviser to presidents. Bernard at the time is in his forties, and he is enchanted with the six- foot tall red-haired emerald-eyed beauty. Enid, for her part, thinks that Bernard is not so great in bed and kind of mean to boot, but she will get a brief stint in Hollywood as a scenery painter from this liaison. Enid is an accomplished lady, as we will discover, and one of her many talents is art. Bernard, for his part, feeling his alleged mistress needs to settle herself in the world, will facilitate her first marriage. But Enid never really is out of Bernard's orbit. When he is nearing the end of his life in the early 1960s, Enid will return to New York for a visit to see her champion before he passes. A skeptic will comment to Dominic Dunn that the whole visit was really about being financially remembered in his will. But old Bernard watching out for Enid will introduce her to her one and only American husband, Roderick Cameron. Enid is 21, Roderick is 45, And he is also a shipping heir magnate from New York. Piles of money. Which is what Enid ends up with a year later when Roderick dies from cancer in 1914, leaving Enid with a one-year-old son, Rory, and a million-dollar fortune. Enid's second marriage takes place to an Englishman this time, the first of three. In 1917, Enid will marry Brigadier General Frederick Cavendish. Now, marrying soldiers at the time was the thing to do, but that Cavendish name certainly doesn't hurt a thing, especially as this husband, had he lived, would have had the title of Lord Waterpark. But the thing that I want you to know, it's not Lord Waterpark that matters here. It is the nickname at the time of Brigadier General Frederick Cavendish. He is known as Caviar Cavendish. A few notable things happened during this marriage. The first Enid is presented to King George and Queen Mary at court and is said to be the most beautiful Australian ever to be presented. But the thing with this marriage, y'all, Enid needs her money managed and the future lady title Cavendish thing doesn't hurt. The marriage produces two children and provides quite an international adventure to boot. Seal Caviar Cavendish gets sent to Cairo. He is given command of the Ninth Lancers. Enid accompanies him, and she's a striking figure. She's greatly admired by her husband's troops. Rumors will say she slept with the entire company on a dare. There's a lot going on. Enid is working with the troops' horses in the day, hanging out in the mess hall at night, playing music, socializing, which will connect Enid with one of her legendary affairs, this one with Lord Carnarvon of Highclere Castle and also renowned Egyptologist. Enid will be one of the first people ever to be shown the tomb of King Tut when he discovers it in 1922. Sadly, old Caviar Cavendish will die of a cerebral hemorrhage, leaving Enid in what will become a very familiar state of wealthy widowhood. Now, by 1933, it's time for another husband, and this time the groom in question is Marmaduke Furness, also known as the Duke. He is heir to the Furness Shipping Fortune, and at this time in the list of the world's richest men, Old Duke comes in number six. Hold on to your hats, friends, because this one has a backstory all on its own. This is the third marriage for both Enid and Marmaduke Furness, and it's worth taking a little time to review the Duke's first two marriages. His first marriage was to Ada Hogg, also known as Daisy. She comes to a youthful and unfortunate end when she dies upon his yacht called the Sapphire. This event occurs on a pleasure cruise from England to the south of France, although the pleasure part is a little debatable. A source will say to Dominic Dunn, they say she was pushed off the yacht, but no one could ever prove it. There are some murky circumstances in this one. They say if it could be proved that the Duke did actually do Daisy in, that he would have been hung with a silk rope, but there is no inquisition, no arrest, no trial. Daisy's death occurs in 1921, and the Duke will wait a few years to marry again, and when he does, second marriage will be to Thelma Morgan, daughter of Harry Morgan, twin sister of Gloria Morgan, making Thelma also the aunt to Gloria Vanderbilt. Telma Furness will have her own sordid part to play within world history. Telma, quite famously, will have an affair with the future King Edward VIII, but at this time, he's just the Prince of Wales and really enjoys betting married women. Easier that way, and country house parties make it ridiculously easy to facilitate affairs. Telma, during this affair, will need to depart for the United States to assist her twin sister in little Gloria Vanderbilt's custody trial. Big Gloria is fighting with Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney over the possession of young Gloria, and during this time, Thelma, going to help her sister out, will ask her nicest friend, Wallace Warfield Simpson, also a married lady, to keep an eye out for her lover, the Prince of Wales, while she's out of the country. We are probably familiar with how that all turned out, England, with a scandal and ultimately a new king when Edward VIII will abdicate the throne to Mary, said Wallace. The thing this terrible and awkward, hey friend, watch out for my royal boyfriend also does, is cements the divorce of Telma and the Duke. This happens in 1933, but the thing about Telma here, she and the Duke will always remain close. The Duke while unhappily married to Enid, will seek comfort in his ex-wife, and Telma truly believes that Enid is doing all the drugs and in fact gets the Duke hooked on all the drugs too. Reading from the article in her book, Telma tells of an occasion when Furness was nervously biting his knuckles. We went up to the Duke's suite. Duke took off his coat and asked me to give him an injection. I couldn't do this because I did not know how. I'd never handled a hypodermic needle. Finally, he asked me simply to pinch his arm and he gave himself the injection. Of the last time she saw him on the Riviera, she wrote, I've never seen a man look so frail, so mixed up, so ill. I cried, Oh, Duke, if I could only put you in my pocket and take you away. The Duke will die in 1940 at age 56, leaving Enid three times married, three times widowed, with one more to go. This time, while Enid is cooling her jets in London, waiting for all the business of Duke's will and probate to settle out, she will meet Valentine Castleross. This is what he was known by in his first career as a gossip columnist, but hey, peerage is kind of a funny thing. Now, Valentine is a very large man physically, like 255 pounds. He is once known to have accidentally sat on a dog and killed it. Valentine has a reputation for lechery and gambling and is not terribly well liked because of the dog accidents, gambling, and lechery. He ends up writing that particular gossip column published in the Sunday Express because he's broke. He's an heir without a fortune and his friend, Lord Beaverbrook, is just trying to set Valentine up with money to survive. Now, Valentine had a wife previously. He was married to Doris Castleross, who was a great friend of Vita Sackville West and Virginia Woolf. Doris and Valentine divorced in 1938, but Doris will die in 1942 at the Dorchester Hotel from an overdose of sleeping pills. There is an inquest into this death, which conveniently three weeks after that is closed, Enid and Valentine will marry in 1943 in a Catholic ceremony at Brompton Oratory. One guest describes the event as taking place in a nightclub setting for all the titled crooks and rogues in London were there. But what do you know? Valentine is dead within eight months, having suffered a fatal heart attack. From Memento Mori, when Kinmare dies less than a year after the marriage, Chip's Cannon, the English diarist, wrote of him, an immense, kindly, jovial, witty creature, Faustafian, funny and boisterous, and always grossly overdressed, and yet with a kindly heart, and was not quite the fraud he pretended to be. Enid, though, may be a little bit of a fraud, because there's a great debate happening after Valentine passes away about where his money, what there is of it, actually goes. Enid, at the age of almost 50, will claim to be pregnant with his child, giving her an additional 13 extra months with his income and on his lands. David Hicks, the English decorator married to the daughter of Earl Mountbatten, was a frequent visitor at La Fiorentina. Quote, they used to say about Enid, she married first for love, Cameron, then to Cavendish for position. It was a very good name. Then to Furness for the money and Kenmare for the title, he said. But there were lovers too. The Duke of Westminster was in love with her, said Tom Parr, the chairman of Colfax and Fowler, a London decorating firm. There was one of the selfridges, too, of the store, said Elvira de la Fuente. A rich man, he gave her money. He was very unattractive, too. Some women can only go to bed with handsome men. With Enid, it didn't seem to matter. Y'all, those are just her husbands, because there's a fairly infamous scandal. Again, I'm going to let Dominic Dunn take the reins on this one, quote, There was a terrible scandal in New York, but I wouldn't want to talk about that, said an ancient lady in London. In Paris, an ancient gentleman said, lowering his voice, have you heard what happened in New York? Such a scandal. The New York scandal they were referring to was what has become known in social lore as the Bloomingdale scandal. Donald Bloomingdale, a sometime diplomat, was 42. Handsome, a rich man, who enjoyed an international social life, maintaining apartments in Paris and New York. Donald had very chic French friends, said Elvira de la Fuente. He spoke French very well. He was quite a snob. He married one of the Rothschild heiresses, the sister of one of them, but the marriage didn't last. Donald Bloomingdale was also a particular friend of Enid's son, Rory. Rory was very much in love with Donald Bloomingdale, but at the time, Donald was in love with an Egyptian called Jean-Louis Torrel, who was very drugged, Elvira de la Fuente tells Dominic. In the winter of 1954, Enid Kinmere and Donald Bloomingdale were in New York at the same time. People remember things differently. Some told me it happened at the Pierre. Some said it happened at the Sherry Netherland. Some said it happened at the Sense Ray Savoy Plaza Hotel, which used to stand where the General Motors building now stands on 5th Avenue. At any rate, Donald Bloomingdale wanted some heroin, and Lady Kinmare gave it to him. One New York friend of Donald Bloomingdale's told me the heroin was delivered in a lace handkerchief with a coronet and Lady Kinmare's initials on it. Another New York friend said the heroin was in the back of a silver picture frame containing a photograph of Lady Kinmare. However, it was delivered, the dosage proved fatal. Apparently, it was a bad mixture, said Tony Posson. and the rich Mr. Bloomingdale, who would have been far richer had he outlived his very rich mother, Rosalie Bloomingdale, was found dead of an overdose the next morning by a faithful servant. Good servant that he was, he knew how to handle the situation. It was not his first experience in such matters. He called the family lawyer immediately. The lace handkerchief with the coronet or the picture frame with Enid's picture or whatever receptacle the heroine had come in was removed as were the implements of injection. The family lawyer called the family doctor and police were notified. Meanwhile, Lady Kinmare was put on an afternoon plane with the assistance of her good friends Norman and Rosita Winston, the international socialites, who for years had leased the clause, a house on the grounds of La Fiorentina. She was out of the country before any mention of Donald's death was ever made, said Bert Whitley of New York, who leased another house on the grounds. The servant, who had been through previous scrapes with his employer, was left money in Bloomingdale's will, as were Rory Cameron and Jean-Louis Tourelle, the Egyptian, who also later died of a heroin overdose. The newspapers reported that Bloomingdale's death had been caused by an overdose of barbiturates, no connection between the Countess and the death of Donald Bloomingdale was ever made publicly. But everybody knew, I was told over and over. Everybody knew. Dominic will continue to write, did he didn't ever talk about Donald Bloomingdale? I asked Anthony Pawson. It was always a tricky subject, he said. She didn't talk too much about it because of all the rumors going round did Rory talk about it? I asked a lady friend of his in London. Those stories about Enid were never discussed. I mean, you can't ask if someone's mother murdered someone. Rory told me, though, that once when she arrived on the Queen Mary, the tabloid said, society murderous arrives. She replied, when Donald died in New York at that time, we all expected to know more about it, but nothing came out. She ran from New York after that. Enid will head on back to the south of France after the Bloomingdale incident. And this is when her future great friend and bridge partner, Somerset Mom, will dub her Lady Kilmore. And this time, the name sticks. Somerset Mom and Enid are bridge partners for years. And there are legendary stories about these two. Apparently, their introduction was made at a lunch party where Somerset Mom had just moved permanently to the Riviera. And is at this party and says... Apparently, there's a lady who lives on Cap Verrat who's killed all of her husbands. But unbeknown to Somerset Mom, the lady about whom he's speaking, Enid Kinmare, is at the party and hears the remark. Enid doesn't take offense, though. In time, she and Mom become great friends. They play bridge together constantly. Old Enid, you could count on her. She will even hide Mom's impressionist art collection from the Nazis for him. Some people say that Enid and Somerset Mom were going to get married after Lord Kenmare's death, but most people scoff at that. Nonsense, says David Herbert. Many people agree. I don't believe she ever wanted to marry Willie Mom, unless it was for the money. Willie wasn't too interested in the ladies, you know. Old Elvira de la Fuente will continue on. Enid had no friends really, except Willie Mom. She adored him. She and Mom were a funny couple. They were intimate because of bridge. They played it all the time. He was already old and grumpy at the time. It was companionship and affection, but there was no thought of romance. People never stop talking about Enid. Daisy Fellows, another legendary heiress, she of the singer sewing machine fortune money, will maintain a chilly, not quite friendship with Enid. And there is some serious shade in this little piece of dish as well. Dominic will write that Daisy Fellows describes Enid as an Australian with a vague pedigree. Once in conversation, Enid began a sentence with the phrase, people of our class. Mrs. Fellows raised her hand and stopped the conversation. Just a moment, Enid, she said, your class or mine. After the Bloomingdale affair, Daisy Fellows announced that she was going to give a dinner party for 12 people. I'm going to have all murderers, she said. Very convenient. There are six men and six women, and Enid Kinmare will have the place of honor because she killed the most people of anyone coming. Enid develops quite an international reputation in her set. And I'm going to continue on with Dunn's writing here because he gets the best stories and the most amazing recollections about Enid. All so memorable. There's just... (laughs) No need to rework the master's canvas here. She was one of the most accomplished women. She rode, she shot, she fished, she painted very well, she sculpted. She did beautiful needlework, she cooked marvelously. There was nothing she couldn't do, said Tony Posson, Looking through album after album of photographs of life at La Fiorentina with its unending parties, one doesn't see an angry or worried face among the people pictured. Any age, any generation, 18 to 80, in and out of the house and dogs everywhere. Although Lady Kinmare was thought of as a famous hostess, a word she greatly disliked, her lunch parties were often haphazard affairs with unmatched guests. Celebrities such as Greta Garbo, Barbara Hutton, Claudette Colbert, Elsa Maxwell, and the Duke de Verdora came, but so did people no one had ever heard of. Guests would be thrown together, friends of Rory's, friends of hers, the well-known and the unknown, the young and the old, the inexperienced and the accomplished, with no care as to the balance of the sexes at her table. Enid was diligently unpunctual, arriving vaguely long after her guests had been seated, once prompting Daisy Fellows to remark on her hostess's absence, busy with her needle, no doubt. Another guest remembered she had no sense of time whatsoever, She'd arrive when the meals were over or be dressed for the casino and evening dress and jewels in the afternoon. Tom Parr said she was an ethereal character. Nice to us who were Rory's friends, adorable even. But then she'd float off. On one occasion, she was struck by the handsomeness of a young man sunning himself by her swimming pool. Do please stay on for dinner, she said. But Lady Kinmare, I've been staying with you for a week, the young man replied. Jacqueline Delubac, a retired French actress, will say, Enid was completely original, very elegant, very distinguished. She always made an entrance like an actress carrying a flower. It's a little story here that I find amusing. Apparently, Enid is always surrounded by a mangy pack of dogs. So the guests would be seated, then you'd hear the dogs coming, and then Enid would come, but even more unusual. When Enid would come in, she would come in with a parrot on one shoulder and her hyrax on the other. She will feed her hyrax from her own fork, although at the cinema she would sometimes pull lettuce leaves from her bosom to feed it. Many people mistook the hyrax for a rat. It is a small, ungulate mammal characterized by a thick-set body with short legs and ears and a rudimentary tail, feet with soft pads and broad nails, and teeth of which the molars resembled those of a rhinoceros and the incisors of those of rodents. Enid will teach her hyrax to pee in the toilet, standing straight up on the seat, and sometimes she lets her guests peek at it through the bathroom window, keeping out of sight since the hyrax was very shy. Enid, no keeping her down at one time, her friends say, again continuing from Memento Mori, Enid, who kept a residence in Monte Carlo and was a citizen of Monaco, harbored a desire for her daughter to marry Prince Rainier and become Her Serene Highness the Princess of Monaco, but the prince showed no romantic inclinations toward Pat, nor did Pat to the prince. Enid will happily attend Prince Rainier's wedding to Grace Kelly. As the tall, statuesque Lady Kinmare emerges from the cathedral at the end of the service, she was cheered by crowds who mistook her. For a visiting monarch. Eves Vidal will say before anything else, Enid was a mother. Most of the things she did marrying all those men were for her children more than herself. It is with her oldest son, Rory, that she is the closest. There is a London lady that will say, I always thought Rory was in love with Enid. At Emerald Cunard's parties, they used to come in together covered in rings and not speaking. Dominic will write, they had an extremely close mother son relationship. It was really Rory's life that Enid came to lead after all the marriages, said Elvira de la Fuente. He used to say to her as a joke, Now you'll never find a fifth husband after you've killed four of them. They lived as a couple, but it wasn't incestuous. Rory told Enid he was homosexual when he was 40. She had never suspected it. It was a terrible shock to her, but a shock she overcame in a day or two. Eves Vidal will go on she really didn't like social life. She was actually miscast in the grand life of Chatelaine and hostess of the Riviera. Another guest will say, she was in a way a passenger at La Fiorentina. As she got older, people began to think of it as Rory's house. This famous lady was always in the background. Sometimes she'd go for days without coming out of her bedroom. This home does command the entrance to Bewley Bay, which is considered a strategic position during the war. The Germans will occupy the house at one time and build extensive fortifications on the property against an allied invasion. Toward the end of the war, they'll blow up these fortifications, which destroys half of the house and most of the gardens. But when the house is returned to the family, La Fiorentina is redesigned by Rory in the Palladian style and interiors decorated by him. As Enid grows older, she develops a curvature of the spine and will begin leasing the house. Elizabeth Taylor and Mike Todd occupy it for a time. The American philanthropist, Mary Lasker, will also rent it during peak months. The home was bought. Mary Lawrence, the owner at the time, will say, when we bought La Fiorentina, there were no lights in the bathrooms. Lady Kenmare couldn't bear to look at herself in the mirror anymore. Enid, upon selling the home, will move to Cape Town, South Africa, she buys a stud farm and raises racehorses. Her daughter, Pat, had already preceded her there. And even for a while, Enid employs Beryl Markham, the author of West with the Night, to train her horses. But Enid and Beryl, who had known each other since Enid's marriage to Lord Furness, both had pretty strong personalities and that partnership did not work out. I'm going to close it here with a quote, again from Eve's Vidal, that Dominic got. Saying Enid was mysterious. I remember once watching her run down the steps of La Fiorentina followed by her dogs. She was so beautiful and she knew she was very beautiful. Until the end, she kept a wonderful allure. What made her life and ruined her life at the same time was her beauty. What a way to end a story! Like Dominic Dunn, good writer, all the dishy gossip. In a way that only he is able to ascertain, cultivate, and write about from this very privileged, rich, moneyed set who all like to gossip about people in their own class. It's fascinating to me. That is the tale of the much-married, much-widowed Lady Kilmore. Oh, I mean Lady Kinmar. Old Enid. Thanks, everyone for spending your time with me and Dominic Dunn today. Can't tell you how kind you've all been and how much I appreciate your ratings, your reviews, your good feedback. Y'all are the very best. I can't wait to be back with you next Monday in an all new episode of Done and & Done. And until then, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done & Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at dunnanddun at gmail.com.